You know, um, I just want to say on behalf of the pastoral staff, uh, the book of Hebrews is, is a great book on the local church. If you're thinking you're looking for a book of the Bible to read, Hebrews is a fantastic book on the local church. And the author of Hebrews is writing to the people, uh, his audience, and especially in chapters 13, he writes to them, tells them, live in such a way that your elders, the pastors above you, it is a joy and a delight for them to serve you because if it's not, it's no benefit to you. You know, and I just want to say on behalf of Tim and Adam and Jared and I, just thank you for making it a joy to be the, your pastors here at this church. You know, because it's very easy. I, you, with some pastors, I've, I've been at some church environments where in staff meeting, it's, man, what, what's going on with these people over here? You know, and at our staff meeting, it's, what's going on with these people over here? That's what we like. And it is a joy to be able to serve in a church where I think you get it. You're, you're in a sense, a model of what we're going to be hearing about this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 7, a model of hearing the Word of God with a heart of obedience and then taking it into your life. So thank you for being that kind of a congregation. Thank you because ultimately, right, it is not to the pastoral staff. It is to the glory of God that we live as a people of God. And so thank you very much. So we feel very appreciated in the fact that we're living the lives that we're all called to live. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, turn open to 1 Samuel 7. We are concluding the very first section of the book of 1 Samuel. If you recall from our reading service many weeks ago, uh, we will pick up Samuel chapter 8 through 14, the next section, probably in the middle of January. We're going to take a break, and then we get into Advent season, and we'll jump back in in the new year. Um, let me just say that uh, as, a, as a way to introduce this particular text, in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, Mark records that the very first words of Jesus as he began his public ministry were these words that Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. It was, a pretty, it was and is a pretty straightforward message, total of six words, six words, repent and believe in the gospel. But in a culture where um, increasingly we have lost the appetite for words that have kind of moral weight to them, it's hard to even understand what repent even means because we don't ever see that word, repent or repentance. As a matter of fact, in popular culture, the only time you're going to see that word is on the sandwich board of the homeless guy in all those end-of-the-world movies who's proclaiming the end of the world. That's the only time you see the word repent anywhere. It is just not something that we're accustomed to do. Now, if you study the Bible, all the words, the word family for repentance, there are many words that fall under that umbrella in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, and they all have in mind the same kind of meaning. Basically, the, the Greek word that's most common for repentance is metanoia. It means to just have a 180-degree turn. It's, an, it's kind of an about face. All the words have roughly the same meaning. Change your mind, change your direction, to relent, to agree with another. This idea that you were thinking or doing one thing, and then you've changed and now are doing something else. Now, in English, the closest word that we have to that probably would be the word or the phrase, I'm sorry. Right? When, you, when it's done right, I'm sorry can express a lot of the elements of the word repentance. So there's this um, admission of guilt. Uh, and it's, it's both the, not just the subjective, you feel guilty. That's what we usually think when we hear the word guilt, like how you feel. That's included in that, but more importantly is the sense of, I am guilty. I don't just feel bad, 
I actually am guilty because what I did was bad. Does that make sense? So there's this objective sense of guilt as well as a subjective sense. I feel bad and I, because I am wrong, so there's a sense of guilt. It's also an understanding of remorse, but included in a good apology is this understanding that things have to change. I can't keep doing what I'm doing. I'm sorry. Now, if, I'm so, if sorry is similar in sense to the word repentance in our culture, then it's still not surprising why we don't really understand repentance because we don't even see good examples of someone saying sorry in our culture, right? We, we don't see that. I mean, occasionally you'll turn on the news and hear a politician or a celebrity apologize, right? But that, that's not, those are lessons on how not to apologize usually. It go, you know, you've heard them, they go something like, um, I'm sorry if you were offended, Okay, wait, are you, so you're not sure if you offended me or not, so what are you apologizing about, right? Or my favorite is, I'm sorry that you were not able to appreciate my intention. Wait, did you just apologize and insult me simultaneously? Because I'm not sure if that's what was going on. The point is, we live in a culture, because of our uh, aversion to kind of moral character issues, that even the idea of right and wrong is kind of up for grabs. How can you be sorry when there's not anything definitive right or definitively wrong? At that point, you don't have sorry. There's nothing wrong. It's just preference, right? So you can't say, hey, I prefer you not lie to me because that's a moral category. You can only say something like, I'd prefer you not misrepresent the details to me, but hey, that's just my preference, and I don't want to make my preference an absolute, so you do whatever you want. Right, that's a crazy world, but that's kind of the world we live in. Yeah, that's a whole other sermon. My point was simply, in a world where moral categories and moral weightiness is something we're increasingly uncomfortable with, it's not surprising we don't have a good understanding of someone recognizing error and saying, this is wrong, I have to be different. That's why, part of the reason why we come to church, right? Uh, not, not to beat ourselves up and be all guilty, but because we see in Scripture those very things being played out for us. We get to see not only wickedness and righteousness, but we get to see the transformation from one to the other, and that's what we have this morning in 1 Samuel 7. In the book of 1 Samuel, there are two great, well, there are two examples of an apology, repentance. Uh, one's a good one, that's this morning, 1 Samuel 7. And one's a really bad one, and that's 1 Samuel 15 between Saul and Samuel. We'll get to that in due time. But this morning, we get to see after years of apathy and disobedience and willful ignorance of the things of God, an entire nation saying, I'm sorry, I want to repent. What does it mean to repent? Can we be different? So in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to answer three questions. Number one, what does repentance look like? And that's going to be in verses 2 through 6. The second question is going to be, what effect does repentance have on our lives? We see that in verses 7 through 11. And then finally, how do we maintain a repentant heart? Verses 12 through 17. So what does repentance look like? What effect does repentance have in our lives? And how do we maintain a repentant life? Okay, that's where we're heading this morning. Let me pray and ask God to bless the study of his word. Father, we are grateful for the way you work in our lives. How just... As I was able to reflect on the songs we were singing, being reminded of things that we get reminded of nowhere else but are the most important things. Thank you for the weekly gathering, the rhythm of being with other Christians, being with people, like-minded people who want to know what your word says. Thank you for people who recognize their need and, and don't come here with arrogance like they've got it all together 
but come here broken and oftentimes looking to you for guidance and direction. Father, we know you love to meet your people there. We see it in our passage this morning. We pray that we would be able to live in light of that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first question, what does repentance look like? Let's take a look at our passage. Let me just read a couple of verses here, verse, starting in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at kirith Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So a couple of background notes here. Uh, when it says the house of Israel lamented after the Lord, what it's really saying is that they were heartbroken after God. They, they got it. Everything that had happened in chapters 4, 5, and 6 had its intended effect. They were lamenting after God. They were heartbroken over their behavior and wanted things to be different. Second thing, notice how much time has passed since we studied this passage, this last passage, last week. 20 years has taken place since the events that we studied last week. Another 20 years takes place from chapter 1 of verse, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 7 to verse 2. 20 years has transpired. That's a long time. And you may, if you were here last week, you might be thinking, 20 years? Wait a minute. Last week, you said they understood. They got the lesson, and they were wanting to change. How come now 20 years has passed by? And, and, and Samuel, in, in verse 3, it, it says this, uh, and Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. So this is probably a summation of Samuel's message over the last 20 years. It's not like he only had one sermon. That was it. This is probably a summation of everything he had been saying to Israel for 20 years. If you're going to change, if you're going to do these things, then this is what you must do. So what we have going on is a 20-year period of the people of God recognizing from the events of chapters 4, 5, and 6 their tragic error in dismissing God and treating him without honor and treating him lightly and not giving him his due regard, not giving him that weight. And 20 years goes by and the faithfulness, and it gets to the point where now uh, God is going to do a work. Here's something important about that. Um, in our culture where we're used to kind of Hollywood movies and, and crisis, conflict, and co resolution happens in a 90 to 120 minute package. That's not how life works, right? Often, God's greatest works in his people take time, long time. Change is difficult, it's an arduous path, and it takes long periods of time. It's very rare, some of us in this room have had experiences where when you came to Christ, it was dramatic and a radical change, and there was this huge change in your life that everyone could observe it. But, but by and large, it then kind of balances out, and you're just kind of on this easy trajectory, right? And some of you, if you've grown up in the church, uh, you've never had this radical, dramatic change. It's always been this gradual thing that's going on, so much so that sometimes it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment you could say you became a Christian because you just always seen, because of the faithfulness of God, that your life was on this trajectory. Point is that deep heart change typically just doesn't happen like that. It takes years of, of habits that you've built into your life to be unlearned, patterns, behaviors, ideas, thoughts, uh, passions to be changed within you. And we see here in God's Word that's exactly what's been taking place in the lives of God's people. 20 years of this kind of process where God is, is working on them now that they were at a point that the hard lessons of chapters 4, 5, and 6 had come home, that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning 
of 20 more years of God changing these people. And finally, when we get to about verse 4, after 20 years, it's time to go public. This parallels, you recall, chapters 1 through 3, 20 years of God's Word going out, warning them to change, asking them to change, and they would not change, they would not heed. After 20 years, God says, okay, now my judgment's coming, and it went public. In a sense, these 20 years parallel it, but in the opposite direction, 20 years of God healing, restoring. You can imagine community events like this, one-on-one conversations, 20 years, and God says, you're at that point. Let's go public. But it's not with his judgment like it was in chapter 4. It is with God's mercies and favor. So we see in verses 3 and 4 the ideal of the way this is supposed to work. God's word going out faithfully, effectively, fruitfully, and the people of God responding faithfully, fruitfully, and effectively. Now I want you to, to notice this pattern. It's basically a if then, then if this, then this kind of a pattern. So look at verse 3. Samuel's message has been, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, here it comes, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. So what does repentance look like? We're starting to see it here. It's a, it's a if this, then this kind of a thing. It's a turning from to a turning to. You see that right there. Put away the foreign gods and direct your heart to the Lord. Look at the end of verse 4. The people respond, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtoreth, and they serve the Lord only. You see that pattern? It's they turn from something, and then they turn to something else. You see that consistently two times. Turn from this, and then now do this. In repentance, in re- coming to that point where God brings you, he says, I'm going to change, you want to change, it's always those two. It's always a turning from to a turning to. It cannot be one without the other. For example, if someone turns from sin, but they're not turning to the Lord, that's not biblical repentance. Now, that might be good that you've you've turned away from things and patterns and behaviors and relationships that were destructive to your life. That's always going to be good. But if you're not turning to the Lord, you're not understanding grace, the mercies of God, the gratitude. So what happens is you might have turned from your sins and changed your life around, but that can actually feed a sense of moralism, self-righteousness. So now you're, you're not bad like you used to be, but you're not also being fueled by grace. And so you breed a kind of self-righteousness because you look at those people and say, well, how come you can't change like I did? I figured it out. I was smart enough to turn from those things. Why don't you be like me? You pulled yourself up from your moral bootstraps, and now you're different. See, that leads moralism. But if you turn to the Lord, and you haven't turned from your sins, you're not any much better. Because now you're in a place where, hey, God loves me. He's got all these great things he wants to do for me. You think he's this benevolent grandfather that's going to bless you, bless you, bless you. And then you get this sense of, but I don't have to live a changed or different life. God loves the fact that I'm just living my life however I want. You see, if one was just moralism, that you're trying to live your life by the law to be justified, the other is what's called antinomianism. Let me explain that word. It's a Greek word. It means anti, against, namos, law, against the law. The other is antinomianism. There's no, I can live however I want and get my goodies too. God doesn't care about my purity or any of those other issues. He loves me. See, if this breeds self-righteousness to the person who can't change, this breeds a different kind of self-righteousness to the person who's trying to change. 
So these people say, well, you know what? Why are you trying to fight for a holiness and all that? That's, just, that's the law. You don't need that. God doesn't care. He wants you to just live however you want. The point is, repentance has to be both. It cannot be one or the other. It has to be both of these. So let's look. This is not just in the Old Testament here in 1 Samuel 7. Let me show you a couple of passages that show this point. Uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 15. They're on the screens behind me, so you can just write down the scripture citation that when you get home, you can look it up. This is what the writer writes. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. You see that right there? Turn from these vain things, turn to a living God. Then look at Acts chapter 26, verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. You see the same patterns there. Turn from darkness, turn from uh, Satan, turn to light, turn to God. Same thing, turn from, turn to. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new self. So same principle, just using different language, right? It's not turn from, turn to. It's put off, put on. And then Paul writes through Romans, Romans 13. The night is far gone. The day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So you see this constant pattern, turn from, turn to, put off, put on, cast off, put on. It's this whole kind of concept that it's holistic. It's not just internal, it's external. It's attitudes, actions, beliefs, behaviors, characters, convictions, motives, manners, it's the whole thing. Repentance is a holistic change of the way you live and even including your worldview. So at one time you may have thought, what does God care about the way I use my money? You realize, oh my gosh, God cares a lot about the way I use my money. What does God care about what uh, political candidate I'm voting for? God cares tremendously about the political candidate you're voting for. What does God care about how I drive on the freeway? He cares a lot about how you drive on the freeway because you now recognize that when you turn to him, you realize something amazing, that you live in his world. This is his world, and you just got your fingerprints all over it. And that's what repentance is. You're turning from the things you once had trust in, and looking for your security, looking for your prosperity, and now you're placing those in Yahweh, the Old Testament name for the Lord. It is scary to do that because these are the things you used to trust in. Those are the things that made your life go. And God's saying, I want you to turn from those and trust me. It is scary but exciting because while you know what you're turning to is more sure, more trustworthy, it's also out of your control. And that's a little bit scary. See, idolatry works. We like our idols because simply we, we think they'll work for us and we think they're under our control. That's why idolatry works. It's, it's different. We don't go to Baal and Ashtaroth. You've never been tempted to trust those things. But you trust other false gods just as easily. Right? So if you, if you, um, if you fear poverty, you're going to idol, your idol is going to be wealth. And that's going to be your savior. So you're going to work hard and work hard so you can get more and more and more. If you, if you fear rejection, you will idolize uh, social acceptance. And so you will work on your sense of humor, you'll work on your looks, do whatever it takes. But since you can't control the markets, since you can't control any return on your investment, you've got to keep working harder and harder to get more and more. 
There's always going to be somebody funnier than you. Someone always looks better than you. You're never going to be good enough. But you keep going and you keep going looking for those things to save you. Repentance says stop trusting those false gods. Stop trusting those gods and put your trust in the Lord who may or may not want you rich. He may want you poor, but he'll always provide for you. Stop trusting these other idols and start trusting in the Lord who will give you what you need to accomplish the plans he has for you. Even if you may not be good enough, it doesn't matter because he's gracious enough to where your performance, your popularity, your looks, whatever, don't really matter. So repentance is always calling us from trusting the things we trust in to trust in the Lord, and that's scary. Because some of us have built lives on these idols that keep us afloat, and God's saying, I don't want any of those. Get rid of all of those and trust me for these things. That's what repentance is, a full turning towards God, letting go of the things of my earthly confidence and trust and putting those in the things of the Lord. Finally, closing out this section, verse, uh, repentance is final. Final. Look at the end of verse 6. So they gathered at Mizpah. They're going to go public with this. They're going to reestablish themselves as a nation in this big ceremony. They gathered at Mizpah, and they drew out water and poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted. The two most essential things people need, food and drink, they says, these are not important to us. What's important is being reconciled with God. And then they do all this and say, we have sinned against the Lord, period, hard stop, nothing else. You ever heard this? I'm sorry, but I'm sorry if or because, and you just know it doesn't work. You ever try to, guys, when you ever apologize to your wife, you just say, I'm sorry. The moment you do the I'm sorry, anything else, it doesn't quite count, right? Repentance has to be, I'm sorry. You just don't, I mean, is it just me or are you guys tempted to add to that somehow? I'm sorry, and then you feel the qualifier coming in there, or the justification, or the blame ship, or whatever it is. Yeah. I love the motto here. We have sinned. Period. Even doing that is an admission of, I'm throwing myself at your mercy, because you could throw in a bunch of other things here, Right? Yes, there were mitigating circumstances. Yes, the Philistines were intimidating. Yes, they were coming out of nomadic people. There were all those things, but at the end of the day, they recognized we always made choices against the Lord. We have sinned. If you're a note taker, write down these three following words. Recognize, transact, act. What do I mean by that? Repentance, apologizing. This isn't just between us and God. This works for human to human, person to person, husband to wife, father, child, whatever it is. Recognize your error. I blew it, son. I made a mistake. I did this. Period. Hard stop. Own it. Embrace it. I made a mistake. I screwed it up. I am at fault. Own it. Recognize it. Then transact. Lord, would you forgive me? Son, would you forgive me? Honey, would you forgive me? Look... So recognize it, make a transaction, and then act on it. Be different. It has to go in that order. It has to go in that order. Because if you take any of those elements out, it's not going to work. If I just try to act on it, be different, without having owned it, it doesn't make a difference. And when it comes to the things of God, if I'm not transacting with him and getting his grace, I don't have the power to act differently. I have got to be able to recognize my error, 
go to him recognizing he's going to give me grace to be different so that I can live differently. If I miss one of those elements, I'm short-circuiting myself. So I need to recognize my error, do a transaction between me and God or the person I've offended, and then act differently. I need all three elements. That's, that, that's a sermon in and of itself, but we have to move on. So that, what does repentance look like? What effect does repentance have in our lives? Let's go back to the text. So what effect does repentance have in our lives? We're going to pick it up at verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. These, these poor Israelites, they, they don't get a break. These Philistines were relentless. They finally are coming to a point of repentance, and then the Philistines are going to attack them. So, so, so they could say, why do we want to repent? Every time we turn to God, something difficult comes, but they don't. Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so verse 9 and 10 is, is Samuel praying out for them and offering a sacrifice. Look at verse 11. Then it's an amazing turn of events. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. So what effect does repentance have in our lives? So we just saw it here. There was a complete now confidence in God's ability to save them. I'm going to point that out a little bit more a little bit later, but you just need to see that. There was this recognition that, God, you can save. And then importantly, verses 10 and 11 shows us there was actually power in their lives to be different. God's power was now released in their lives, and they routed the Philistines. Do you see that? Now, you simply cannot help but contrast the people of Israel in chapter 7 that we're looking at this morning to the people of Israel of chapter 4 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. You cannot help but see the contrast. In chapter 4, the Israelites were trying to coerce Yahweh because they had his furniture, the ark, their lucky rabbit's foot. In chapter 7, it's just this recognition of they're in big trouble and crying out to God for deliverance. So behind me, you see, I've, I've, I put it out there so that we couldn't miss it. Look at chapter 4. Israel was struck down by the Philistines. Three times we read that. In chapter 7, the Philistines are struck down by Israel. In chapter 4, there was, I, I use the word manipulation because they were looking to the ark, trying to force God's hand, let it save us, the ark. And then chapter 7, there was a sign of repentance, let God deliver us, let God save us. In both cases, it was the Philistines were their enemy, but this is the real important point. Chapter 4 ended with this phrase, Ichabod, remember that boy being named Ichabod meant the glory of God has departed. In chapter 7, it ends with Ebenezer which means to this point, the Lord has helped us. It's as if this author is trying to say, God, can you, can you not see the difference here? There is no uh, religious magic or selfish autonomy in chapter 7 like there was in chapter 4. In chapter 7, there's just this uh, living by sheer faith and a passionate dependency on God. You don't get there overnight, especially for an entire nation. It took 20 years to get there. It's as if this author, um, I think Samuel, like we said, and Gad, and maybe Nathan who wrote this, they're trying to say that you people reading this book, whether it was immediately after these events or us, which chapter do you want to describe your life? Because there they are in vivid detail, chapter 4, living however you want. You call the shots, that, that God doesn't really exist functionally, that you're actually God, treating him as more of a kind of a formal religion. Or chapter 7, 
and living this active obedience and, and life-giving repentance. I want to note something. Up until verse 11 of chapter 7, the situation was the same for the Israelites like it was in chapter 4. They still had the Philistines there on the coastal area. There's still, there's still the intimidation, possibility of getting decimated by them. Nothing changed except one thing that changed everything. They recognized we're not God. There is a God. He's called us to worship Him. And when they did that, when they repented, it made all the difference in the world. And we saw it happen in verse 11. You know, Martin Luther, who is uh, the, what you could say, the father of the Reformation, I suppose, who, by the way, 498 years ago this weekend, for those of you who are history buffs, this very weekend, 498 years ago, Martin Luther, this little monk, walked up to a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed on the door what's called the 95 Theses, and it started the Reformation. If it wasn't for that day, this day, 498 years ago, we'd all be Catholics right now. Martin Luther recognized there's things wrong with the church. They need to be reformed. We have traded passionate love for God for religious externalism and moralism. We're not turning from sin and turning to God. We're just not, we're not doing either of those. The church needs to reform. He didn't intend for the Protestant Reformation to take place and, and then the world get turned upside down. He just realized things need to be different. The very first thing, the very first of his 95 um, theses or his, his areas that need to be reformed was this. All of life is repentance and faith. All of life is repentance and faith. What he was saying is that life is not this kind of cavalier, comfortable, casual religiosity. Life is a battle between good and evil, and we're caught in the middle, and the only way to get through is to constantly recognize I have to turn from and turn to. I have to put off and I have to put on. That's where life was meant to be lived, with this conscious understanding that I'm always living before the face of God. Repentance is not just a point in time, one thing you do. It's a way of life. It is a way of life. So what does repentance look like? I'll summarize here. Wholehearted devotion. It's changing of your worldview. It's every part of you exercising an understanding that I am living, as I said, coram Deo, before the face of God. Everything I do is before his face. And then what are the effects of repentance in our lives? We saw it here in the text. A growing confidence in God's ability to save. I love it that they could have easily said in verse 7 and 8, the Philistines are coming. Get the ark. They knew where it was. Verse 2 tells us they knew where it was. That's what they did in chapter 4. But this time they didn't do that. They said, the Philistines are coming. We're crying out to God. Only his hand can save us. So the effect it has in our life is a growing confidence in God's power to save and equally as important, the, the ability for God's power to work through your life as we see it working through the Israelites in verses 7 through 11. The effects of repentance is it puts you in a place where God's blessing can continue to flow through and on your life. Now, how do we maintain a repentant life? We know what it looks like. We know its effects. How do we maintain it? Verses 12 through 17. I'm just going to read one verse. And that's two, I'm going to read two verses, 11 and 12. And then the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as beth Car. Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Eben-Ezer. 
For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. If you've been with us, you know that Ebenezer also shows up in chapter 4. That's a different Ebenezer. It's interesting, again, in chapter 7, that they'd name the stone that would mark that location, the exact same name in chapter 4, to bring the point home. This is how we behaved before. Look at how we behave now and the difference. Always remember this. So we're setting up a memorial. So the one word, how do we maintain a repentant life? One word. Remember. Remember. Saul sets up a stone to help the people remember. They, they would always walk around. They weren't always driving cars. So they were going for walks and they would see that monument. They'd say, Dad, what's that? Oh, son, that's Ebenezer. That's when the Lord, when we repented and he met us and routed the Philistines. Everywhere throughout Israel, they would set up these monuments so that generation after generation would say, Dad, what's that? Oh, let me tell you that story. This is where the Lord did that. Ebenezer. Now in verse 13, well, Samuel sets us up. He says, till this point, the Lord has helped us. It's kind of neat because on the one hand, where they set it up, it could mean that this is the point the Philistines were backed off. They never came in again. Verse 13 tells us that the Philistines never came in again to the territory or takeover territory in Israel. So it could mean that up to this point, the Lord has helped us because we never lost this land again. Or it could be that Samuel's saying, up to this point, God has gotten his people remembering back. God called Abraham, and Abraham was sent into Egypt. And for hundreds of years, we were enslaved, but then we also flourished as a people, and he led us out. Remembering the exodus, the years of wandering in the wilderness, remembering the conquest years of Joshua, remembering the unfaithful years of the judges, remembering the corruption of Eli, and remembering that all through it all, God was saying, I'm going to care for you, I'm going to bring you through, I'm bringing you to my point. This is up to this point, the Lord has remembered us, the Lord has helped us. So the question is, do we have memorials, milestones, markers in our own lives to help us have these kinds of experiences? You know, one scholar says this, we stand in the present, but we dwell on the past in order that we can be steadfast for our future. I like that. We stand here in the present, but we dwell on the past in order that we can stand fast in the future. You realize of all of God's creation, we are the only beings that can think like that? Your dog has never contemplated his past, and he's not thinking about the future. All he wants is food now. You will never see in a zoo any animal, any creature going, hmm, what will things be like in 20 years? It doesn't happen. Only human beings exist in these kind of three areas simultaneously. And we need to remember because we are prone to forget. So do you have your own Ebenezer's? Now, you've had situations where God has worked miraculously. If we were to share them, as a matter of fact, that's part of what next week's about. But if you were to share them, you would have our own Ebenezer's. The question I'm getting at is have you done something to galvanize that memory so that when things get tough, you have a point of reference? By the way... That's one of the reasons that at our church we do a a reflection service. It's not because the preaching pastor needs a break, you know. It's it's a time where we corporately stop and say, here's my Ebenezer. This is what the Lord has done for me as we've been studying through this passage of Scripture. That's one of the reasons we do a reflection service. So if you're new here next week, this congregation is going to preach the sermon. You are preaching the sermon. 
We all together are going to testify of the Lord's Ebenezer as we've studied the book of Samuel together for the last eight or nine weeks. That's, why, that's part of why we do that. Do you have an Ebenezer in your own life? Because if you don't remember, you will forget. That's what we do. As a matter of fact, that's why this table's in front of me right now. This table actually is an Ebenezer. It is a stone of remembrance that we remember the faithfulness of God. All the things we've been talking about from 1 Samuel, especially 1 Samuel 7, the repentance that is afforded to us, the power of God given to us, comes easily to us, but it didn't come easily. It, wasn't, it was hard won. What I'm saying by that is Jesus had to live to the exact standards of God's law. Jesus had to be perfect. And then on that, on his, and, and by doing so and then dying on behalf of his people, we get that blessing. It's easy to forget that. Very easy to forget that. So at least monthly at this church, we stop and say, we need to remember. We need to remember that my sins are completely forgiven. I don't have to earn God's favor. I don't have to earn his love. It is given to me. I need to remember that I don't have to continue to beat myself over the head because I'm not good enough. I need to embrace. I never will be. That's why Jesus came. I need to remember that my gift of salvation costs something, and my life ought to be different, not because I'm trying to earn it, but because I'm grateful that I have it. We need to remember. Let's pray.